Well, it is a privilege to be here, and thank you for coming. Um, It it never ceases to amaze me what a great privilege it is to talk with people who come to sit and hear someone else talk. You know, it's just, that's that's such a, a, a gift that you would give me your time. So I hope to honor that and have something to say that might be helpful. Uh, I, I do what I do, which is to write and speak, uh, because I really love people and I really love God. And uh, I, I'm aware as I look at you and don't know names, but I'm looking at a sea of unceasing spiritual beings who have an eternal destiny in God's great universe. That's who you are. You're an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. Uh, you were designed to be, uh, that, that God chose to bring you into existence uh, in, in this time, in this place, in the body that you've been given, in the culture where you are living, um, for a significant purpose, and that is to make a real difference, to, to live a radiant life, and even to die a radiant death, because Jesus has defeated death, and uh, we won't even taste it. But nonetheless, uh, we are meant to be, as St. Augustine said, alleluias from head to toe. And that's what you were designed for, and you were designed for a great adventure, and your soul is massive, and it won't put up with anything less than a great adventure, and we'll, we'll seek it however we can, maybe in some sort of a movie or some kind of escape, because your soul wants this great adventure. And that great adventure is life in the kingdom of God. It's what you were designed for. So I want to be talking about that in my time with you uh, this evening and, and tomorrow. But I want to begin by uh, addressing what I think is right at the heart of this, this whole process of formation And that is, who do we say that God is, and how do we understand who we are? I think those are really fundamental questions. And as I've helped uh, people in the process of formation and listened to people's lives and tried to pay attention to what's happening, I've come to the conclusion that this quote from A.W. I've got so many typos. It's A.W. Tozier. It's not A.W. Tower. It's T-O-Z-E-R if you're keeping score want to read his books. Uh, But A.W. Tozier, Aiden Wilson, that's what it stands for. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a big statement. It's in the category of hyperbole. Like the most important, not the second most or kind of an important, but the most important thing about you, if Tozier's right, the most important thing about you isn't your bank account or your, the letters after your name or what you've accomplished or your job or all the things that might be important to you. But if Tozier's right, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. Now, he goes on to say in the rest of that quote I don't have it on the screen, but the, the, the sentence that follows that line is, if you, were to, if you were able to determine what a person thinks when they think about God, you can predict their spiritual future. Meaning that how we frame who God is, our narratives about God, are going to shape our very lives. 
It's going, to, it's going to influence every aspect of life. And so I believe that he's right, and I think we have to really think about what we think about God. Dallas Willard, my, my mentor, often said, think about your thinking. Think about your thinking. And of course, the Apostle Paul said this in many places. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your minds on things above. Whatever's true, whatever's right, whatever's lovely, whatever's pure, think on these things. As we think, so we live, James Allen said. So I want to talk this evening about our God narratives. And I have a quote from Brennan Manning, and this is my second typo that I know of. Uh, and I think it's, this one's actually really funny because it's actually the quote is God made man in his image. But I like that sort of God madman. Uh, God made man in his image, and then man returned the favor. Meaning that, that uh, we often project onto God, we project onto God a series of things that we've picked up. So none of us does theology in a vacuum. Everyone gets an education. Uh, we've all been taught to think about things, about life and death and meaning and who's a good person and what's success and what's God. Is there a God? Right? We've been taught that. It didn't just happen. We've picked it up along the way. And we have all of these ideas, and they come together in this amalgamation. And then we project that onto God. So that's what I love about Brennan's quote. Is, you know, God made male and female in his image. And then we sort of go, let's just make God in our image. Let's make God a big guy. right? And so we often do that. In fact, children will often... If, if you have children, like, say, what do you think God's like? They, they really don't have any other means than to say, God's a really big person. And quite often, if you ask a child to draw God, it's an old white dude with a beard, because that's just what seems natural. Just, we're just going to project onto God something like that. And so we want to begin thinking about what is it that comes into our mind, as Tozier said, when we think about God? Jonathan Edwards, <clears throat> famous... <clears throat> excuse me, American preacher, uh, wrote what is considered <clears throat> the, the most important sermon in American history. It's been called that, and, and the title of the sermon is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards was the key preacher of the Great Awakening, a, a huge movement in the United States. And that sermon has been dubbed the most important sermon in American Christian history. And that's a big statement to make. And I was just with, just last week, at my university, we had an eminent American theologian who was visiting our college, and he, this statement came out of his mouth. He said, Jonathan Edwards is the most important theologian in American history. <clears throat> and I had to just sort of sit there and say, well, well, not sure I would agree with that statement. But, um, but his, his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, uh, certainly did shape a lot of the way many Americans frame who God is. And so a poll was done at Baylor University, and uh, they asked people to sort of tick a box, like, what, do you, what comes into mind when you think about God? Tozier's quote, 
And 38% of American Christians checked the box that said God is an angry judge who's very observant, is paying attention to everything that we do, and is poised to punish us if we disappoint God. 38%, that's almost 4 in 10. So if you are in the United States and you see 10 Christians anywhere, you can probably guess that 4 out of 10 of them, if you say, what, back to Tozier's quote, what comes into your mind when you think about God, they'll have something like, well, God is an angry judge, poised to punish me. Dallas Willard uh, used to say that many, many Christians think that God is a giant, unblinking, cosmic stare. He's just watching us. Every move we make, every breath we take, every vow we break. That, that's Sting, sorry. But nonetheless, <clears throat> that idea, and I think, I think Dallas is, is right, there's this idea that there is a God who is, is watching every move, taking note of every, even the smallest infraction, and uh, is just waiting to get us for it. It's a very common narrative uh, that I've discovered. And um, I, I've, I've seen it in my own, in my own life. Um, my, Andrew mentioned that we have two children, Jacob and Hope, but we, we had a, a child in between. Um, her name was Madeline. And at, toward the end of, her, uh, of the pregnancy, my wife's pregnancy, the doctors discovered a, a chromosomal disorder. And so they, they told us that they didn't think she would survive birth. She did survive birth, but she did have a very rare, actually, uh, chromosomal disorder that made it impossible for her to grow and thrive. So my wife and I, uh, you know, had to raise a, a special needs child, and that was just a part of our life, right? That's just, that's what happened in our adventure. And, and uh, six months into Madeline's life, I was having lunch with a, with a pastor, and he wasn't a good friend, but I'd known him a while. But uh, he said to me during... We were talking about Madeline, and, and during lunch, he just said to me, so Jim, who sinned, you or your wife, that caused God to give you this special needs child? And I hear some of you going, hmm, hmm, or ah, right? Because it does strike us as, well, why would someone say something like that? Well, people think that, right? People, Job's friends thought that, right? What did you do, Job? Or Jesus' disciples when... Uh, they come a, uh, upon a man born blind. The disciples said, so, so master, rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? So the narrative's old, right? It's been around since Job's days. It's, it's thousands of years old. But somehow, back to, to Brennan's thing, we just sort of assume that, that God must be really mad and he's going to get us for what we're going to do <clears throat> because we projected that on, onto God. Yes. Oh, is this having trouble? Yeah. All right. Switch it out. All right. Good. Um, so Jesus could have affirmed that narrative, right? He could have, he could have said, well, yeah, um, this man was born blind because his parents were unfaithful to God. And God just needed to do that, right? But he didn't do it. When they said, who, who sinned, this man or his parents? He said, neither. He literally rejected that idea. He said, but his condition is such that God will be glorified in him. And then Jesus healed him and he 
that did glorify God, right? We're talking about him still today. There were two other occasions um, where another situation arose. There was a natural of sorts disaster where a tower fell on people and killed a number of people. And, and people asked Jesus again, so what, what did they do to cause that to happen to them? And Jesus, again, in that passage says, they, they didn't do anything to cause that. And the other one was a group of people who were slaughtered. So it wasn't a natural disaster. It was a man-made, if you will, humans doing horrible things. And these people were massacred. And Jesus was asked again, what did they do? And again, and I kind of think eventually Jesus probably went, oy vey, these people. How many times do they, have, do they have to raise this? Why is that, though? Because the, the, the narrative is deeply embedded. It's deeply embedded. We just think that somehow at the heart of the universe, there has to be some cosmic judge who's really mad and just, you know, wants to get us. It's, it's, it's there inside many, many people. It's deeply embedded. I was thinking as we were singing tonight, such beautiful music and the lyrics are so deep and profound, but I, I was thinking about a paper, it's kind of hard to talk about because it's heartbreaking, but a student of mine, her name is Bethany, and she, I have permission to tell her story because I said, I want to tell your story, Bethany, because I think it's so, it's, it's, it illustrates where a lot of people are. But um, she had written me this essay about how she struggles with believing that God could love her and the incredible shame that she has and so forth. And, and if you knew her, like she's, she's nearly perfect. I, I know that's a weird thing to say, but she's this absolutely lovely young woman. She sings like an angel. She plays piano. She's unbelievable songwriter. She's an incredible student. Um, she, her, she's passionate in her faith and all these things. So when I read that, I think, where did that come from? How does someone like Bethany, raised in this wonderful home, how, how does she still have that, right? And I was thinking about that when we were singing because I, I recently saw her singing what we were singing tonight. I caught this image of Bethany singing that same song about the reckless love of God. And then I thought about her essay. You see, there's a disconnect. You can sing it still. So we're dealing with a really deep, a deep issue. And so one of the things that we have to think about is, well, where does it come from? Like, where, how do we get to that place? And I think how we frame the gospel, how, how we describe what our faith is about is important because the gospel that we preach and teach will inform people of our narrative of God. And so I want to I talk about that uh, because a very common way of framing the gospel, and I have to be careful with this, and I, I'll try to be, but uh, Amy will go to the next slide, is um, the gospel that is quite often communicated to people. Is, is the, the doctrine is called penalty or penal substitutionary atonement. 
And I'll just say PSA because that's a lot of words, okay? So just when I say PSA, you know, the penalties. And basically, <clears throat> that, that gospel is that we have a problem of, with our sin. We're, we're alienated from God because of our sin. But that Jesus has stepped in, and in, in the substitutionary part, as Jesus is the substitute, has taken our place. And then atonement is, being, is the reconciliation. So it's, it's a little corny, but when I, think the, when I try to teach the word atonement, think of at one meant, like we're now at one with God. Atonement, at one with God. So the at oneness that we have with God is because Jesus has taken this, this place, this substitutionary place. Now, that's a wonderful, historic Christian doctrine. You can support it biblically. It's true. <clears throat> but I have here on the slide that the, go- the PSA gospel can be, I have it in italics there, it can be explained in such a way that it portrays God the Father as vengeful and angry. There's a way that it can be done. A God who's forever in need of being placated. Because quite often, <clears throat> well, if you look historically, what happened is in, in the late 19th century, in my country anyway, in, in the revivals that were happening, they began to frame the gospel in a way that was frankly a way to get people scared, to get them to make a decision. And the way you did that was you would say something like, um, you're in a condition now that were you to die, you would burn in hell forever. And uh, I drive across American highways, and quite often there literally will be a billboard that will say, if you died tonight, do you know where you'd spend eternity? And the really clever ones have like flames, just to be sure you get it. Now... What happened was, it was a way of framing the gospel in such a way to move people towards a decision. It's a decision-based gospel message. And it's a gospel really for the afterlife and not for life. It's to move people to make a decision so that their eternal salvation, that language is used, is secure. And it's a very effective sales tactic Because all you have to do is throw out there, would you like to spend eternity burning? No, I, I don't think I do. Well, good for you. I have some good news for you. Jesus died for your sins. There's the substitutionary atonement, which is true. And if you confess him as Lord, then you can go to heaven when you die. Well, I'll take that. What do I have to do? Just make the decision now, and we'll do something. I don't know, but you'll come forward. We'll get you wet in some way, maybe. Or the Quakers, they dry clean. We'll, we'll do something. We'll, we'll, we'll have some sort of ritual, and then you're in. And there it is. We're done. Boom. Of course, it's a gospel message that doesn't lead to discipleship and transformation and the things we talk about here. But uh, nonetheless, that's a very deeply rooted way of understanding the gospel, as I said there, and I have it on the screen, it is an essential Christian doctrine. But let me just say this. You can talk about substitutionary atonement, and we ought to, in a way that you don't have to have God being angry. You don't need God the Father to be angry at you, to proclaim the good news that Christ has been our substitute. 
God was in Christ reconciling the world. 2 Corinthians 5.18. God was in Christ reconciling the world to God. Not God to the world, reconciling the world to God. Do you see how important that difference is? God in Christ was reconciling the world. In other words, the message is to us because we're the ones who are not reconciled to God. So the cross, instead of being a place of victimization to get an angry God not as angry, is actually God's attempt to reach out in love to reconcile a world to this loving God. This God who knows about guilt and sin and shame and takes it away so that we can be with this God. Thomas Torrance, a very important theologian for me, put it this way. He said, there's no God in back of Jesus. There's no angry father in back of Jesus where Jesus is going, Dad, don't be so mean to him. I'll take it, okay? There's no God in back of Jesus. The Trinity is in complete accord. That's why I love 2 Corinthians 5.18. God was in Christ. God was in Christ. They were together reconciling the world. But you can tell the gospel in a certain way where you've got an angry God, the Father, who just continues to be angry. But for Jesus' death, one, one popular American theologian actually said this sentence. Jesus is the asbestos suit that protects us from the white-hot wrath of God. Really? Thank goodness for that suit, because he's so mad. He's so angry. And that's where we're we're stuck, right? And so it gets communicated. Now, that may be harsh to say it that way. God's really mad and you should burn. And I mean, m- many of you didn't hear that gospel in that way. I did, but, but some of you didn't hear it that way. But little things get picked up. You know, God loves only the good little bro- girls and boys, right? That, that, that subtle message that he's disappointed and bitter and that sort of thing. That, that's so common and so pervasive. I believe it's the work of the enemy, frankly. Because if you get that narrative in your head, you're never going to have a joyous relationship with God. So that's where we stand. Now, I, I, I want to show something in just a moment, um, a clip from a movie that's based on a book. And I have to do a little disclaimer because I recognize that some people have a little bit of trouble with the book or the movie, The Shack. Um, and I, 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 I understand that because William Paul Young, the author, that he's a good friend of mine. Um, and I know, like, I know that if you, how many of you maybe know the book or movie or read? That's a lot. Okay. I guess it got down under. Uh, well, it sold 22 million copies, so I'm sure it reached just about everywhere. But of course, if you don't know, and that's not many of you who don't, based on that show of hands, 
in, in the book, uh, Mackenzie, or Mac, the, the main character, is a father who, whose child is, is murdered. And so this, it's this dealing with theodicy, which is how could a good God allow horrible things to happen? And so Mac is, is really mad at God, really mad at God. And I get that, right? Having lost, our daughter Madeline lived to the age of two, uh, just to let, finish that story if you're wondering, and, and then graduated onto glory. But, so I get it, right? A parent being mad. So I understand that. I relate to that. Um, but in, in the book and, and in the film, this main character gets an invitation to go to the place where this shack, where the daughter was murdered, and he goes there thinking that he's going to meet maybe, maybe God or it's some kind of a joke because his pet name for God was Papa. That's how Mackenzie addressed God. So when an invitation came from Papa to go to this shack, uh, he goes just, just out of curiosity to see what's happening. And so he goes and, and meets the Trinity. <laughs> so there you go. So the, the main character goes and gets face-to-face with the Trinity, and the Trinity is not what you would expect because the way Paul Young depicts the, the members of the Trinity is God the Father, named Papa, is actually a black woman. And the Holy Spirit is an Asian woman. And then um, Jesus is a Middle Eastern man, which Paul told me a couple months ago. He said, actually, you know, I do get pushback. People are like, How did you, why would you make God the Father a black woman? And, you know, why would you make the Holy Spirit an Asian woman? But he said, Jim, I actually get more pushback when people say, why did you make Jesus a Middle Eastern man? Because <laughs> he was a white dude from England. That's, that's <laughs> what you would think. Anyway, uh, so this is really one of my favorite scenes in the film. And um, so Papa, played by Octavia Spencer, is, is going to say some words to Mac that, that God knows that Mac needs to hear. Uh, and I do want you to pay attention to a particular phrase fairly early on in the clip, but then they're going to have a little bit of discussion of theodicy. That's, that's the, the issue of, of how do we address suffering, human suffering. But then there's a, a very fascinating way about talking about the atonement. And so we'll just go ahead and watch this clip now. Press out, fold back, rotate. All there is to it. I know what a great gulf there is between us, Mac. You may not believe it, but I am especially fond of you. between us there's no easy answer that'll take your pain away no instant fix that's enduring life takes a bit of time and a lot of relationship relationship Mm -hmm. you're the almighty god right you know 
know everything. You're everywhere, all at once. You have limitless power. Yet somehow, you let my little girl die. When she needed you most. You abandoned her. I never left her. If you are who you say you are, Where were you when I needed you? Son, when all you see is your pain, you lose sight of me. Stop talking in riddles. How can you say that you will help me when you couldn't help her? Because of you, she's gone. Unless you can change that, I will never be free. The truth sets everyone free, and the truth has a name. He's over in his woodshed right now, covered in sawdust. Truth. Hmm? I know that story. You left him, too. Seems like you have a bad habit of turning your back on those you supposedly love. I'm not who you think I am. He said it himself. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? No, Mac. You misunderstand the mystery. A lot of theology in four minutes. So many things um, that happen in that, that brief exchange, so many lines, but one of them is you misunderstand the mystery. You misunderstand the mystery. What does mystery mean? Mystery means that it's something greater than we can understand. Mystery doesn't mean that we can't understand it at all. Mystery refers to those things that are too big for us to fully grasp. That's why we call them mysteries. But it's not that we can't understand them at all, because we can. Things like the Incarnation, 
the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Trinity itself, are mysteries because they're too big for us. But we can still understand them. And the mystery of what happened on the cross was God's way of loving the world, was an act of reconciliation, was an act of complete love. And what I love about that particular scene that I'm sure you didn't miss when Papa reaches out her hands and the same marks Jesus' marks on the cross are felt there. So Thomas Torrance was right. There's no God in back of Jesus. The God who reconciled the world was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that God has never had to be angry at us to draw us into that relationship. Did you notice one of the first things I said? Try to pay attention to something early, a line that Papa said to Mac quite early in that exchange. Did you, did you catch it? What was it? Did you hear it? I'm especially fond of you. I'm especially fond of you. That's a refrain throughout the book, and uh, it spoke to me personally. And so I asked Paul, um, the author, I said, you know, how did you come to that phrase and why? Why do you have God the Father saying that? several times. And this was his answer. I thought it was fascinating. We say things like, God loves you. And the subject of that sentence is God. God loves you. And there's a way in which you can actually say God loves you and still believe that God is angry at you. Still believe that God thinks you're garbage, but God's so big and good that God can still love you, like with gritted teeth, just has to love you, that God's the subject. But Paul said the phrase, I am especially fond of you, the subject of that sentence is you. And it flips it on its head to come to the place where we, we actually believe that God is especially fond of of us. And that's the shift, right? That's why what I'm talking about tonight, who do we say God is and who do we say that we are? And we only know who we are on the basis of who God says we are. We live in a world where we are grasping to find our identity. We're trying to establish our worth and our value through our accomplishments, our achievements, or our profiles online. Because we are hungering for some kind of significance. But it's very precarious and it doesn't last. They're evanescent, they're shimmering, they don't matter. You can't establish your identity on anything other than who does God say that I am. And to imagine that God is saying, I'm especially fond of you. And to see the cross in that light, to see 
the incarnation in that light, to see the, the life and teaching and suffering and death and resurrection, everything in the Christ form just shouting to us, I'm especially fond of you. That's the good news of the gospel. God was in Christ reconciling the world, not reconciling God to the world, reconciling the world to God. That's a big shift. That's a big shift. So we need to, as best we can, understand the mystery, right? not misunderstand the mystery. You see, Mac misunderstood the mystery. You left him too, like you left me. I didn't leave him, and I didn't leave you. That was our experience for my wife and I with, with our daughter. I never felt God's presence more, more real and more tangible and more powerful than in the experience of Madeline's life. God never abandons us, but is with us even in the depths of our suffering. And really the most beautiful things that, that God creates out of our lives are really through our suffering. It's never our successes. The real beauty of our lives comes through the suffering when we allow God to be with us. When through our adversity, God can do something miraculous and amazing. Dallas Willard would often say this, God's the most joyous being in the universe. God is eternally joyful. And God is especially fond of you. And what I said to Paul last time I was with Paul Young, the author of this book, what I said to him is that I like to add something to your, your wonderful statement where God says, I'm especially fond of you. And this is what I add on to the sentence. God is especially fond of you on your worst day. Because there is another narrative that we have that says, God, well, he could like me if I just shape up, if I just get a little better. When I, when I get serious about all this and I let go of that besetting sin or I somehow accomplish this or get more serious in mind and start practicing, you know, then maybe. No. God is especially fond of you on your worst day. Because God's love for you isn't based on your performance. It's based on who you are, made in God's image, fearfully and wonderfully made. You're an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. It's hard to take that in, isn't it? It's really quite good news.
The gospel that we preach ought to lead people to love God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not to be glad that somehow someone took our beating so that he can put up with us. But to believe that we are the apple of God's eye on our worst day. Now, that doesn't mean that our sin doesn't matter or that holiness is not important. Our sin matters a great deal to God because it destroys us and he loves us so much that God hates the sin that, it, that is ripping us apart. I have a, a, a section in a book I wrote called The Good and Beautiful God, and I think it's an important section in the book where I talk about the wrath of God. Because some people are like, well, you're just too soft on sin, this James Bryan Smith fellow. He's just grace, 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 love, love, love. Now, I take sin very seriously because I believe God takes it very seriously because sin by its nature, it destroys us. Sin isn't something that's really awesome that God's just prude about. No one's ever sinned and gone, that was awesome for me. I'm so much better for that. Really glad I broke that commandment, right? It doesn't work that way. And so, but you have to be able to get to the point where you can say, and it's just amazing, to, to, to really be able to say that God is rightly wrathful towards my sin because he's so absolutely in love with me. Well, that's where we want to move, right, is into that place. So I wanted to leave some time for any interaction, any questions that you have. I think I've said enough inflammatory things that certainly you'll have some question or reaction. And Andrew, you're going to come, I think, and together we can dialogue a little bit. So um, Andrew's going to come up. If, and you can, you can ask anything, almost, uh, but, uh, yeah, and, and so feel free. Any questions, comments? Roving Mike. I've got a question. Yeah, go ahead. i got it. There you go. Um, how do we balance God's love with God's wrath? How do we balance it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's what I was just touching on, and I think you, you have to say this. You see, 1 John 4, 8 a very important verse, 1 John 4, 8. God is love. It doesn't say God loves. It says God is love. Because if you say, well, God loves, then God, you can say, well, then sometimes he doesn't, right? God loves. And no, no, 1 John 4, 8. Really important verse. God is love. You can't say God is wrath. God isn't wrath. You say God is love. And then you say, but is there such a thing as the wrath of God? There is the wrath of God. So in Colossians 3, um, Paul names a number of sins. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed. He gets, a, he, you know, he gets some of those lists down. And that's important, right? So that's, that's Colossians 3, um, verse 6. And then in verse 7, he says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, you read Colossians 3, 7, and you go, yep, there it is. Those sexual, sexually immoral people, those greedy people, God's wrath is just going to go burn them up. 
It's not what it says. I mean, he starts off by saying, since then you've been raised with Christ. That's who you are. Set your minds on things above where Christ is. See at the right hand of God. And he goes on to explain that those of us who have died with Christ will be raised with Christ. And then he says, therefore, your identity is in Christ. Therefore, put to death all these kinds of things. Sexual immorality, lust, evil desire, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander. Paul's good at lists of sins, by the way. He's got it down. Then he follows that with, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And that's because he understands that that is what will happen. See, what what wrath is, wrath is when God pulls away. Really, I think Romans 1, the most chilling verse in the Bible to me is in Romans 1, where it says, and God gave them up. So when I sin, by the way, I I do. (laughs) Watch it. And everyone in here. When we sin, we are choosing to turn from. And a part of love is to say, I'll let you do that. And so God lets that be and hates the destructive nature of what sin is. And that's what wrath is. So I I want a God who's wrathful towards sin. And you say, well, is wrath like anger? Sort of, in a way. Much of our anger is not very righteous. But there is a kind of anger that that is rightly angry at the right things. So in the United States, we have an organization called MAD. M-A-D-D. You know what it stands for? Mothers Against Drunk Driving. They're mad. They should be mad. People shouldn't get behind 2,000-pound weapons of destruction when they're drunk, right? It's horrible. They're mad. They should be mad about that. I want a God who's mad in that way. But you have to be able to... That's why your question is good, Andrew. You have to be able to separate them and say... He's mad at the sin. He's mad at what sin is and not me. It's hard to make, though. It's because we just want to go, no, he's mad at me, he's mad at me. He didn't like me. No. It's a good question. Okay, some questions from the floor. We have a mark uh, back corner there. Regarding identity... Am I a saved sinner, or am I a new creation with the ability to sin? That's a really good question, yeah. And, um, you know, I, I really like the way that you're phrasing that, because when, when, we identi- when we self-identify as sinners, we're choosing to identify with behavior. But what you've done so well there and the way you phrased it is to... And, and Paul doesn't do that. Now, there are a couple of occasions. One, there's one place where he calls himself the chief of sinners. But he, that's the only time. But he does that because he's making a, a statement. It's, it's really a poetic statement. He's trying to accentuate um, God's love and grace toward him. To say, even me, who, you know, because Paul had to deal with what he was before, like he was persecuting Christians. And so he could say that, I am this most horrible, and yet look at God's love, right? But the phrase Paul uses to identify as a Christian is in Christ or Christ in us. 89 times Paul uses the phrase in Christ or Christ in us. 
So that's my identity. I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. That's my identity. And I sin. And, and I want to, to recognize that that's not the essence of who I am for me. Now, we could debate it. I understand that. But if, for me, I, I, I like to talk about original goodness before I talk about original sin. Because when God first made human beings, of course, when he made everything, he said, and, and it was good. And you know what he said when he made the humans? Very good. Like, well, now I've done it. That's very good. So original goodness, I think, precedes original sin. That's not to take away the deep woven reality that sin is within us. We are cracked icons, as Scott McKnight likes to put it. We are, there's brokenness within us. So, but I don't want to identify it that way, right? Like I remember, I remember seeing a guy who wore a T-shirt, and just to let you know, I can be a little ornery. Um, there was a guy wearing a T-shirt, and it just said, I'm an old sinner saved by grace. And I looked at him, and I said, I think you can do better. And he's like, you don't like my shirt? Not really. No. I mean, because if you're going to say, that's who I am, I'm an old sinner saved by grace. So if I identify as a sinner, then sin becomes normative. Sin is what I ought to do. But sin's never been normative. It's always been destructive for me. So that's a great question. I think I've said maybe more than I needed to. Any other questions? Yeah. No? That's odd. Look at that man run. Um, this is a kind of a blunt one. Um, I guess when I first became a Christian, I grew up in an environment where it was kind of that question of, do you get saved from going to hell? And there's always been a question in my mind: what you know, what happens if you don't? What happens to all the people that never profess Jesus as their Lord? And how do we reconcile that with a loving God? Like that whole idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't feel like I've ever really fully landed that one. <laughs> and I just wondered what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, that that's a, a, a great. It's a big question. You know, what do we do? With, non, with people who don't accept Christ, what do we do? This is an age-old question. You know, what do you do with what uh, the way that used to be framed in the, back in the day was, what do you do with the moral heathen, which I always thought that was a funny phrase. Um, by heathen, that means a non-believer, right? Someone who doesn't confess. But they're moral, like the really good person who's moral. And what are you going to do with the really moral person who's a Hindu? or what? So it's a very deep question. And um, the only thing I can say to that, or what works for me, I can just say that, is that I believe in the goodness of God, and whatever is going to happen, I'm going to say, that's a good idea, God. Whatever you've worked out with that, and I don't know what it is, I know I'm going to say, that's brilliant. (laughs) I don't know what it's going to be. I have no idea. I do know that in the life that I'm living, and I love what Graham Anderson said the other day. Um, Graham Anderson's uh, on Thursday, was that Thursday? Thursday, he said that he was, an, he was a universalist for eight minutes, or eight hours, eight hours, was it? 
he read some book on universalism. Universalism is the, is the belief that everybody gets to go, right? That's the, the idea. It's, it's, a, it's actually a pretty attractive view, right? Um, somewhat hard to defend, probably. But uh, anyway, so he read this book on universalism, and he was sort of taken by it. And he said, um, for about eight hours, I was a universalist. But he said, then I asked the question, if, the, if it's true that everybody gets to go, just if it is, right? I don't know. Any. If it is, would I still want to be a disciple of Jesus? And he said, and I, I, answer, I could answer the question, absolutely, because there's no better way to go, right? So for me, the question's too big. I don't have the answer. But this is, this is what I do know. The life that I live every day in the kingdom of God with Jesus as my rabbi is the most awesome way to live. I'm banking on eternal bliss after I kick. I'm just, what's he going to do with me? He's been, we've been having a ball thus far. So I'm assuming it's going to go on, but I'm not worried about it, you know, but that's, that's a big question. That's a good one. Wow. For you, you guys have really weird language, but your questions are deep. <laughs> These Australians. If you have any other good words for me to test in tomorrow morning, let me know. <laughs> um, how, do we, how do we embrace mystery? It's hard, isn't it? Because we really want black and white. We want it to be simple and clear. We want formulas. Even that formulation of the gospel that I was talking about, versions of public penal substitutionary atonement, it, it's so nice because it's so clean. It's so easy. It's black, white, simple, in, out. Um, it's hard. Right, it's the mystery is is very difficult, but I think that something innately within us longs for mystery. We want something bigger than us, because if it's simple and clear and black and white, it's too small. I always say, to people, don't settle for a a, a a shrunken little story about God or your life. You know, settle for something if you have to settle at all for something that's just so big you have to go. I can't even get my mind around that. That's, good. that's too big. Yeah, that's good, Andrew. Any other questions? All right. This man has written it. Uh, no, I'm using your, sorry, I'm using your wording. Um, so, I, to be fair to James, I haven't come across blind as a world as dog either. So, <laughs> Thank you. So, I felt yeah, ignorant. I, I am ignorant. So, <laughs> um, so I know... Drunk as a skunk. Now that would have given the Americans. <laughs> That's a American. We use that one. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Skunk. <laughs> so um, that's probably not what you wanted to hear. Um, now, I've been feeling a lot of anger lately um, about sin. About what, what do you say? Sin. Uh, He's been feeling a little what? A lot of anger. Anger. Anger uh-huh. with people who, when I'm dealing with business and people want to lie, want to mm. deceive, and so I get really angry. And I just close off deals. I don't go ahead because I'm so angry with sin. And so, and then I'm talking to my mates. I'm trying to, um, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to get them to understand God in the picture of life. And <clears throat> sorry, <laughs> maybe I should drink water about it. <laughs> um, and like, yeah, sorry. Just that just demonstrates my anger that I'm feeling. I think. Yeah. Um, you know, and then I talk to my mates and I say, look, I've had to not go through with this because 
this lying that these people are doing, it's just not acceptable. I don't believe that that's okay to keep doing business if that's what you want to do. I'm out and, um, you know, we'll, we'll continue on to some business where we're just going to be honest with one another. But then when I talk to my mates and they just brush off this business about honesty and lying and deceit like it's nothing. And then I, I might, you know, I might look up a few quotes about um, being on, uh, about lying. Mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah. And and still, there's not much response. And so, the, and so the point I'm trying to get to is this: um, the PSA, the the penal substitution atonement. <coughs> <laughs> Uh, the penal substitution atonement, which is basically letting people know that there is punishment for our sins and that hell is reality and that there is judgment. I just feel that, like later, I felt like there's time for me to say that to my mates, to let them know that a loving approach isn't working. You know, like trying to demonstrate love, trying to invite mates to church, it doesn't work. And then so I think that um, mm. I know what you're trying to say. Here, what do you do when love doesn't work? You know? Don't go, don't mm. go the heavy, heavy road. Don't, don't go the the PSA approach. But you know, James, I'm just thinking there, there comes a time when I've got to. That's all. So mm. am I going? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's a good question, no, and you, there's a lot, you. a lot behind it. I think. Um, well, a number of things that you, you come to mind, and, and, and one is just uh, obviously the, how you felt about being lied to. Um, we all know that. I mean, when, when we discover we've been lied to, uh, it, it, we're deeply wounded. And that's very telling, because it tells us that there is a moral framework to the universe, first of all. And that's important, because we live in a world of, of subjectivity. People think there's no moral framework. And um, and even your 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 mates is that what you guys call your friends? Uh, your your mates who said uh, it doesn't really matter. I, I think of what C.S. Lewis said about you know people think oh it's about so no really moral framework to the world and and Lewis said well yeah try that on when someone actually lies to you. Like oh you can say well that's just the doggy dog world we live in. Well what happens when a person says yes I'll show up for lunch and they don't show was Lewis's example. And that's when people go, that was wrong. That was wrong. He said he was going to be here, and he didn't, right? But that, So there is a moral framework, and that's a part of the, the fabric of reality. Reality is what you bump into when you're wrong. So just try to making lying work. It never will. So that's important, just to state that. Now, your other part of your question is very good, and that is what do you do in terms of how do you help someone who clearly is not living in that way. I think the first thing is to, you know, Paul talks about the person who can correct someone has to be someone who, who themselves feels very deeply what you're trying to correct. And, of course, that's true of all of us, right? I mean, when anyone has ever judged us in some way, we've all been judged, you only receive it well when you know that person loves you and is empathetic and understands it. No one likes the dive bombing. I'm going to come in and tell you, that's what's wrong with you, Andrew, and then walk away. But, you know, when someone is in in solidarity with us and loves us and understands that. So in the case of lying, for example, I think we need to understand why why do we lie? 
Why does anyone tell a lie? There's two reasons why we lie. One is that we think we can gain something by lying, or the second is we'll avoid some, something by it. So gaining usually some form of pleasure or avoiding some kind of pain. That's why we, that's, all lies can be broken down into those two categories. And so you, you have to say, well, why would someone do that? Well, because they are living out of the resources that they have. And so there's the old joke about the little girl in Sunday school when the teacher asked the Sunday school class, what is the definition of a lie? And the little girl said, a lie is an abomination unto the Lord and a very present help in times of trouble. <laughs> so we have to understand why would someone lie to us for one of those two reasons. They, they think they're going to gain something or they're going to avoid something. And so if you can get to a place of empathy and say, well, that person lied to me, instead of just being mad at them and telling me you're wrong, saying, well, why would they do that? You know, there's a fascinating study that was done for HR, people who work in human resources. They did a study and they found out that 25% of all resumes submitted for jobs contain gross misinformation. Gross misinformation. Not like, oh, I put the wrong years that I went to that school, but that I went to that school. <laughs> That's gross misinformation, right? Why do people do it? Because they think, well, I got to lie on my resume to it, you know. Or in, in the United States right now, I don't know if it made the news down here, but all these really wealthy celebrity parents are going to prison right now because <laughs> they, they lied to get their kids into colleges. So, um, it's a pervasive issue. It's a very good question. But I think if we approach it to, from a place of empathy and realize, look, I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. That guy lying in my business situation or that thing, I, I'm okay. Kingdom's never in trouble. And uh, I, so if you have a place of empathy for that, and you can smell it too, and you know, you, you can still tell the truth. Again, in this postmodern world where it's like everything's subjective, there's no truth. My truth. I love when people say, that's my truth. And I think, well, you know what? I get postmodernity. It's the it, we're swimming in it, right? But I can tell you this: I don't want a postmodern dentist. <laughs> Just think about that. I don't want him to get lucky with my tooth and feel it. I'd like him to know something about my teeth and be right about it too. Yeah. All right, we might um, leave it there and we'll continue some more questions tomorrow.